0: and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash slash film.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears call or just stop by Granger for the ones who get it done
0: hello everyone and welcome to slash film daily for wednesday july 29th 2020 on today's episode of the show we're going to talk about the latest film and tv news my name is ben pearson i'm the senior writer at Slashfilm.com, and i'm joined on today's episode by slash film weekend editor brad omen hey that's me and writer quietran Bowie.
2: hey everyone
0: all right, guys, so let's just jump right into the news today. Uh, yesterday, the Emmy nominations were released. H.D., hit us with some of the biggest takeaways from this year's Emmys.
2: Well, HBO's Watchmen scored the most nominations of any TV series this year with a whopping 26 nominations, although surprisingly, it was not competing in the best drama series category. Instead, it'll be a limited series slash TV category, uh, which it will surely win. All the other TV movies, unfortunately, will not be able to stand against this huge <laughs> phenomenon. Um, but it was followed closely by Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel with 20 nominations and Netflix's Ozark with 18 nominations. Schitt's Creek for its final season, um, the acclaimed CBC comedy, scored a whopping 15 nominations, while HBO Succession is falling closely behind with 10. So uh, there are some surprises, some not, but the biggest surprise I think this year uh, was The Mandalorian scoring a best drama novel. Something that uh, is a little unexpected, but kind of feels like a consequence of um, the post Game of Thrones hole that has been left in this year. Last and for the past, oh, <laughs> eight years, 10 years, I guess. I guess uh, the Game of Thrones has just dominated the pop culture landscape and the Emmys. And um, I feel like now there is no real clear frontrunner anymore in the best drama series. Um, category because of that and um, we're getting a couple of surprises like the mandalorian which feels like that kind of um, crowd-pleasing series that the emmy voters are trying to uh, fill the slot with as a sort of replacement for how big game of thrones was although it's not I don't want to say it's not nearly the quality. It's just a different standard, I guess you would say. So <laughs> yeah, there that's are a nice way
0: to, to put it,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But um, were there any uh, big snubs and surprises for you guys when you guys saw these Emmy nominations?
0: Hmm. Um, Brad, why don't you take this? Because we, we wrote an entire article. We'll link to uh, both articles in the show notes that have like the full list of all of the, the Emmy nominations. And then also the our breakouts for the, the biggest snubs and surprises. But Brad, which, which, um, which were the ones that sort of stuck out to you?
1: There were zero. They all went exactly as we planned. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, obviously The Mandalorian is a big one, and I'm probably the biggest Star Wars fan out of the three of us here, and even I was surprised because as much as I love the series, I I find it hard to see it as some of the best drama of the year when there really is a lot of great uh, television and streaming series out there right now, so... If anything, I think it may be just a recognition of its technical achievements more than its, uh, you know, power as a story and how how well it's, it's, you know, crafted as a a TV drama. But as a Star Wars fan, you know, I I guess I'm not going to be upset about it. Um, But other than that, uh, one of the things that um, a lot of TV fans were pretty upset about um, is that Rhea Seahorn from Better Call Saul... Uh, didn't get a nomination. Uh, This is something that fans have really uh, been clamoring for for a while and think that she deserves recognition for her performance on the Breaking Bad spinoff. And she just didn't get a nomination this year. So, you know, it's something that keeps disappointing people. And hopefully at some point, uh, you know, the Television Academy will give her some recognition for uh, her work on that show. I I personally haven't seen it, but HT, maybe you can attest to how how necessary it is for her to get recognized.
2: Oh, yeah. I've only just started um, watching Better Call Saul. I talked about it a little bit on the Water Cooler podcast, but Rhea Seahorn just blows me out of the water. And it's such an interesting character, too, uh, in terms of like past characters that we've seen in the Breaking Bad Better Call Saul universe. She's so principled and so uh, complex in that way. And I feel like Rhea Sehorne, um just give, delivers such a nuanced performance in that regard. And it, it is a real shame that... Uh, the, uh, the Emmys are just overlooking not only Bria Sihon, but most of the Better Call Saul cast. I don't think Bob Odenkirk or Jonathan Banks got a nomination this year. Only Better Call Saul got a nomination for Outstanding Drama Series. But it's uh, it seems like this show, which a lot of critics, and I agree with them, consider the best TV series on air right now, is just getting massively overlooked.
0: Yeah, that's it's a shame. And I think they only have one more season to go. So mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if it'll be one of those, um, you know, like Lord of the Rings type of scenarios where the final season is the one that pulls in all the awards. And it's like uh, sort of the uh, voting body's way of um, of acknowledging the great work that happened, you know, uh, uh, since the beginning, basically. Um,
2: <laughs> Sorry, so- now that you said Lord of the Rings, I'm just imagining Rhea Seyhorn in like the scene where they go, you bow to no one. And she's just... <laughs> Standing and everyone bows to her.
1: one <faster>. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, one, show, one show that definitely got uh, what it deserved was Watchmen because leading the pack with 26 nominations uh, is huge. It got more than any series nominated this year, uh, and well deserved. You know, it's uh, came out came out of you know essentially nowhere. No one was really sure what to expect from the show, and it just blew everybody away. It's truly outstanding television. Uh, the fact that they're not trying to capitalize on it by hastily and quickly churning out a second season that it's really being considered a limited series To I think I think the strength and the integrity it's it's of, the of the storytelling that Damon telling. Lindelof put forward so the fact that it was recognized in so many different categories uh is just just fantastic and uh, even though it was acclaimed it was a surprise to see the Television Academy actually recognize it because it's such an odd niche um comic book series yeah, definitely. And I, I'm
0: personally was really thrilled to see Darcy Carden get nominated for The Good Place. Oh, my gosh. Yes. As
1: uh, as Janet was just really brilliant all the way through that whole <laughs> that whole series. Um, There's some great comedy surprises this year that I was just thrilled by. I'm, I'm so glad that What We Do in the Shadows got a Best Comedy Series nomination. I, I just recently caught up and binged uh, the first two seasons, and it's totally deserving. Easily one of the best comedies on television right now. The one bummer about this, which is uh, a little bit of a snub, but kind of just a consequence of having an ensemble comedy series, is that none of the cast members got nominated. Uh, granted, it's a pretty stiff year as far as competition goes for comedy, so it's it's a little hard to, to break in. Um, but everybody on that show is great and would be well deserving uh, of an Emmy nomination. But I feel like they're all just so equally part of how great that show is it's hard to have any of them campaign you know for a lead role without you know potentially nominating all of them and when you have that you probably end up splitting the votes and it doesn't do anybody uh, any good in that regard right mm-hmm. um, and then the one, yeah. one last thing that I want to mention just because I love this and it deserves more attention is that John Mulaney in the sack lunch bunch got a nomination and that is a fantastic original um, comedy special on Netflix And you should all go check it out right now if you haven't seen it.
0: It's very very funny. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I think all three of us are big big fans of uh, Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever, which is one of the shows that got like completely shut out at the Emmys. So I think uh, I can speak for all of us and say saying, saying that we're a little bit bummed to see that show not really get recognized because I think all of us really really like that one sure. a lot. So uh, yeah, after you do your uh, John Mulaney and Sack Lunch bunch viewing on Netflix, hop on over and and check out Never Have I Ever. Yeah, if you haven't watched that show yet, it's it's definitely worth your time. So. Uh, okay, let's move on to our other news uh, to get into today. And that I guess the, the biggest news really is uh, this historic deal that was reached last night between Universal uh, Pictures and AMC Theatres. So um, I'll try to, to go through this as concisely as possible. Uh, the, the theatrical exhibition window, the time between when a movie was in theaters versus when it was, you know, available like streaming or on demand used to be around three months, um, in the days before the pandemic. But now thanks to this new deal between just universal, this is the only studio that's, that's on board with this right now. And AMC, which again is the only theater chain that's on board with this right now, that time has shrunk from three months to three weeks. So basically this this is a multi-year agreement and it means that universal can put any of its movies on premium video on demand so like the around $20 range for like rentals and stuff like that within just 3 weeks of the time that these movies debut in theaters so that's a very big deal. It's a big change to the way that the industry has worked uh, thus far. Uh, AMC theaters are actually going to be sharing in the new revenue streams somehow. I, I don't know if the specific details on how exactly that's going to work have come out yet um, because the steel is still so fresh, but um, yeah. And th- basically universal can put its movies out in theaters and then uh, choose to, based on how the movies are performing at the box office, they can choose on a movie-by-movie basis when they are going to shift uh, the films out of theaters or even leave them in theaters and put them on these uh, these premium VOD VOD uh, platforms. So, um, you know, I guess for. For slash film purposes, for the the people who are listening to this or who are, are probably more geared and, and dialed into big blockbusters and stuff like that, um, it seems doubtful to me that Universal would put a massive movie like Jurassic World Dominion or or the ninth Fast and Furious movie in theaters and then drop immediately drop it on this you know premium video on demand just 17 days later, which is what they could do. But I think the idea is they're going to make so much mon- more money. Uh, By leaving those as like exclusive theatrical experiences for longer. Um, And the idea, I I think, is that the studio will now be able to take. Smaller movies that um, or, or sort of mid-level movies that maybe aren't performing as well and just try to make as much money off them as possible and a- as quickly as possible. Um, so yeah, this is a, a very big deal and I've been talking for a long time. So I want to throw this out to you guys and, and sort of get your uh, immediate reactions and maybe we can talk about like some of the ramifications that this might have on the industry as a whole. Um, HD, what did you make of this when you first read this news?
2: Um, I thought... It was very interesting, especially all the back and forth that's been happening for the past couple months over uh, straight to VOD releases versus theatrical releases. And I think I wonder if it puts um, how much power it puts in the studios' hands, and I, I and um, versus the theatrical chains. I feel like it, it definitely is more of a win for studios versus the theaters, um, and the theaters are kind of come to this uh, this last um her like conclusion as a just because of circumstance but um yeah i i don't know i'm I, it, it's interesting i wonder if other studios yeah will pick up on this and if it will become the new norm um for uh for just our our movie going landscape now
0: yeah, I, I was saying, um, Brad, before I throw it to you, I, in my piece and and in our chat yesterday, I was w- sort of wondering aloud if this might be inadvertently speeding along the the death of the theatrical experience a little bit, because, um, mm-hmm. you know, even taking the pandemic and, and all of that, uh, the consequences around that and setting that completely aside over the past few years, audiences have been going to theaters less and less. Thanks to the rise of streaming and, and obviously like how much better home entertainment setups have gotten um, and, and the low quality of uh, enforcement of good behavior for, for theater chains like AMC. Um, now that people can wait just three weeks to see a movie, theoretically, I, I imagine a lot of people are going to take that opportunity and say, okay, I only have to pay $20 to rent this movie at home with my entire family instead of paying $100 to take the entire family out to the theater a few weeks earlier. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, I'm just going to wait. But Brad, I think you were pushing back a little bit on that uh, um, that sort of doom and gloom outlook. And, and maybe you have a
1: slightly more hopeful uh, look here. Yeah, only because I, f- I feel like the movies that will probably be the ones breaking the, the standard theatrical window or that probably aren't doing so hot. So hot office, don't need to stick around in theaters as long as they usually do, because keeping a movie in theaters can be expensive. And if you're keeping a movie there for extra weeks where it's only, you know, bringing in, you know, a handful of people at each screening, it's really not worth it. And so I, I think that a lot of the big family movies and blockbusters, you know, that are raking in the money, it's not going to make a difference for them, but it'll it'll make a difference for like mid budget and indie movies uh, that struggle to find an audience in theaters and might actually end up making more money by being released earlier on VOD. Because at the end of the day, even though people are actively choosing, you know, more often to stay home rather than go to the theater, a lot of that I think, you know, has to do with the presence of a plethora of streaming options rather than movies you know, becoming available on VOD also being simultaneously released in theaters. So when it comes to the kinds of movies that people will seek out on VOD and, and wait um, to see there instead of seeing in theaters, I really don't think it's going to make that huge of a dent box office-wise in the movies that really matter for making money. Uh, for studios because people still want to get out of the house, especially after all this is over and everything is, you know, safer again to go back to theaters. Families will undoubtedly want to get their kids out of the house and somewhere else, you know, especially if it keeps them occupied for uh, a couple hours and they can, you know, entertain themselves for a little while. Um, And plus I, part of me wonders if there's an opportunity here for uh, whether it's theaters or studios to create some kind of incentive for people to see these movies in theaters before VOD whether it's offering some kind of swag or maybe like an exclusive like like, or something or something or something or something. like a Q&A or interviews almost turning some of these movies into like the fathom events that you get for repertory screenings mm-hmm. or special events so that way you encourage people to go see it in theaters and they get something extra than they would if they were just watching the movie at home
0: yeah at the very least maybe we can hope that um you know big chains like AMC which previously uh, like we've documented on this podcast over the past several years have not really cared as much about you know things like presentation and and uh, stuff like that maybe this will sort of light a fire under them and and that could be part of that incentive brad is just like you know at least giving people the very best possible way to watch something um as, as like a baseline for the experience so yeah. um, i am curious like how like what ripple effects this might have on the rest of the industry too, because like we said, this is only between Universal and AMC right now. So like, what happens with Regal? What are uh, what are some of these other theater chains thinking? And I think Brad, you ended up writing a, a news story about this just today, right? Like, what what's the um, What does the temperature feel like (laughs) for the industry right now in terms of other companies reacting to this
1: news? Well, it should come as no surprise uh, that other theaters aren't happy. At least um, Cineworld, which is a worldwide exhibitor, they have theaters all over the world and they own Regal Cinemas here in the United States. Uh, They made a statement to Deadline saying that they don't really see how this will have any impact on business. Uh, Seems like a bad idea. Of course, they also said that they're still analyzing it and see what it could mean and whether there are any benefits to it, but that's just their initial reaction. And there is some evidence yeah, yeah, that maybe could not work uh, because a while back uh, in 2015, there was a deal uh, that Paramount struck um, where they shortened the theatrical windows for Scout's Guide to Zombie Apocalypse and Paranormal Activity the Ghost Dimension, where they were released um, to – they had a smaller theatrical window and they were released to VOD, home video, what have you, a little earlier – and the box office for those movies wasn't that great. At the same time, I feel like those two movies aren't maybe the best example because right. one, one is a niche horror comedy that wasn't really going to do much box office business anyway, and the Paranormal Activity sequel was kind of on the tail end of that franchise when people were starting to lose interest. So, I think that when you're dealing you know, with horror titles that are generally lower box office performers out of most of the genres you know, uh, anyway, that's not the best you know, example of how this is going to work. I, I think we need to see movies that appeal to a much broader audience and have a larger demographic in order to see uh, whether or not it will be effective. And that, that's going to take time to figure out.
0: Definitely. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what other studios do here, if they strike up, you know, different deals with different theater chains, or if everybody sort of falls in line and, and tries to, um, you know, strike similar deals just with AMC or, or what happens. But uh, this definitely feels like the start of something, um, you know, that could be potentially pretty seismic. So we'll definitely be tracking this as it evolves uh, here on Slash Film Daily. So let's move on to our next story, which is a new version of Black Beauty is coming to Disney+. Plus. HD. tell us about that.
2: Yes, yeah, so Disney Plus has picked up the rights to Black Beauty, which is the latest adaptation of the beloved children's book uh, by Anna Sewell. And they, have, uh, they will debut it on Disney Plus later this year. This new, new version stars Mackenzie Foy and Kate Winslet in a contemporary twist on the 19th century novel. Uh, it will be set in modern day versus 1877 as the original story was set. And um, Kate Winslet will be voicing the, um Black Beauty, which actually has traditionally been depicted as a male horse, uh, a wild Mustang who is captured and uh, um, forced into servitude uh, and uh, eventually befriends a, um, a teenager, in this case played by Mackenzie Foy, um, a 17-year-old named Joe Green, who is grieving the loss of her parents. So this is just the only the second acquisition that Disney Plus has made um, for feature narrative films after Clouds which is an inspirational teen drama that the streamer picked up back in May and um, is kind of part of Disney plus trying to uh, beef up its current collection of new original titles that are coming to its uh, platform every month. It's been kind of, um, compared to at least other plat- uh, new streaming services, it's been a little bit slow going. It only really has one big title, which is the Mandalorian and all of its other Marvel titles that are highly anticipated have not yet come out. So it's a kind of dire need of some new stuff. So Black Beauty seems like that kind of family friendly um, title property that would uh, do well on Disney+. Plus.
0: So H.C., you have read the book
2: Black Beauty? I did a long time ago. I had like many a girl, a horse girl, girl phase. So I read Black Beauty, Black Stallion. I think those were the two ones actually. I think I, I probably picked up one or either one of them thinking that they were the other. And I actually think I liked Black Stallion more. I, From what I vaguely really remember of Black Beauty, it was much more of a uh, – working class type of story I think and sort of coming not coming of age actually I don't really remember much about it but I know I remember it had to do with London taxi cab drivers it was a bit bit more um mundane and a little sad and bleak um mm-hmm. was much more of an epic adventure I think and had a more of a horse and his boy type of story whereas black beauty was about this um horse that slowly got kind of broken down by its uh, um jobs and service of the uh, of humanity and um it was quite depressing it was very much in the in the lines of <laughs> oh, um that um what's that meat packing uh um novel that um meat
0: packing the, novel oh no the the, ju- the jungle
2: yes the jungle yes it's kind of in the lines of that in that it t- kind of goes deep into like the perspectives of these working class people from the most Perspective of this horse that is kind of uh, put upon for a long time. It's 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 a pretty depressing book, I think. <laughs> wow, it sounds
0: like a real winner for Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah. Oh
2: I think man, a, a very much a different uh, spin on it with this one, taking it, making it more contemporary, like I said, and uh, basing it around uh, the relationship between Black Beauty and um, Mackenzie Foy's teenage girl. So it's more of a more of a heartwarming story, I think, but yeah, I, I, I did read a lot of those um, so the animal books back then were quite sad. I remember reading like oh White Fang and um uh, the Call of the Wild, and they were oh, all yeah. very depressing. So I think it'll probably be a little bit more toned down when it comes to Disney plus. but um <laughs> yeah, Black Beauty is a, a classic, and it'll be interesting to see how they adapt it for modern day.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm I'm glad Kate Winslet well Kate Winslet, is getting more work, if if nothing else. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, Brad, let's talk about Star Wars for a minute. There is a VR experience that is coming soon, and uh, we just got like a, a first look video at that and some casting news about that. Tell us a little bit about what is going on in the world of Star Wars VR.
1: Yeah, so uh, a little while back, um, ILM X Lab created a Star Wars VR experience called Vader Immortal. That was uh, kind of a mix of a virtual reality and uh, some video, video game elements mixed in. Uh, and it's, uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, they're expanding that by doing another VR experience set in the Star Wars universe. This time taking cues from the Galaxy's Edge attraction uh, at Disney theme parks. Uh, it's called Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge. Uh, it'll arrive on Oculus Quest sometime later this year. And uh, a first look video revealed some cool concept art and story details uh, to let people know what it is they'll be getting into uh, in Star Wars virtual reality this time. Mm Uh, So the the official synopsis reads, In Star Wars Tales from the Galaxy's Edge, fans play a droid repair technician who crash lands on Batuu after a pirate attack. In typical Star Wars fashion, they'll quickly get swept up into a grand adventure on the outskirts of Black Spire Outposts. Players can converse with Cecil Slack in his cantina and be transported to other places and times in the Star Wars galaxy through his legendary tales. They can also receive missions to complete in the wilds wilds of Batuu, encountering new characters along the way, like the pirate Terra Ration. And so those two new characters mentioned uh, will be voiced by Bobby Moynihan. Uh, he'll be the cantina owner, and Deborah Wilson, uh, who is a Mad TV veteran, who also voiced a character in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, uh, the video game that was released last year. So uh, this sounds pretty cool because not only is it something that's set on Batuu, where Galaxy's Edge uh, unfolds in Disney theme parks, which is actually a canon part of the Star Wars universe. But it allows this um, opportunity to experience other things that happen in the Star Wars galaxy uh, so that it's not necessarily just a linear story. It sounds like these stories will allow flashbacks to experience other parts uh, of the Star Wars universe. And it's not clear whether or not those will be famous pivotal moments that we've seen throughout the Skywalker saga or the uh, Star Wars stories like Solo and Rogue One. Um, but it is, you know, it's, it's a cool story that will immerse, you know, fans in the world of Star Wars. And uh, having uh, tried out Vader Immortal myself, I will say it, it the experience is pretty cool because the way the controllers hum and vibrate and the movement, it's all very fluid. And it's the first time I've ever felt like, uh, really felt like the experience of truly wielding, uh, you know, a lightsaber in the Star Wars environment. Because even holding, like, a lightsaber that you build from Galaxy's Edge, like, obviously it has weight to it. Um, and that's as close as you get to a wielding a real lightsaber, but actually doing it in a Star Wars environment with characters in front of you and, you know, pretending to use the Force and deflect laser bolts with a lightsaber, it's it's really fun. So uh, this should be something pretty cool.
0: I was going to ask you, Brad, HD uh, and I have not been to Galaxy's Edge yet, but you have. What do you, th- uh, and, and having played Vader Immortal, Um, Which one was the more immersive Star Wars experience, which one, you know, going to the theme park and like physically walking around in that space or being, you know, uh, virtually immersed in uh, in that sort of digital world, which which one. felt? you know, they're immersive in different ways because there's things you can do
1: in VR that you just can't replicate in reality. Like, you know, like I just said, the the actual building of a lightsaber using the force deflecting uh, laser bolts fighting. Uh, Sith and stormtroopers and whatnot um, but with Galaxy's Edge it it feels so much different because it's immersive b- based on the scale of which with its great you know it's it really is overwhelming and incredible to see a scale version of the Millennium Falcon uh, in front of you and go to all these places that genuinely feel like you're walking around a real Star Wars location that is tangible you know and the 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 only thing that takes away from the experience is that you're experiencing it with, you know, a thousand people around you so it's not just just you that's there. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, they're 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 both they both bring different uh benefits to the the immersion factor as far as people wanting to feel like, you know, they're part of Star Wars. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk
0: a little bit about uh, Comic-Con at Home and the numbers that uh, this this virtual event generated. Before we get to these specific numbers, uh, I think it was on Monday's podcast, um, Peter and Jacob and I were talking about, about our experiences with Comic-Con at Home. Um, HD and Brad, I know you guys covered it as well. Uh, I just wanted to, to get your your quick thoughts on um, how that experience was for you. Um, HD, having gone to San Diego for the first time, I think it was last year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you make of the, the Comic-Con at Home experience?
2: Well, it's definitely nothing like the the experience of actually being there in person. And I was one of the few, I think, that who had a really good uh, first experience at Comic Con. I really enjoyed my time at Comic Con last year, and I just had a grand old time meeting people and forming connections and just being part of that crowd. and And uh, I really, i I really enjoyed that just communal experience, and that is entirely lost when you go. Completely online and virtual, and um, I feel like co- with Comic Con at home, they uh, made a big misstep by leaving out that community almost entirely and just kind of forming it around the panels, which are fun, but are not, they're not—they're not the only appeal of Comic Con. In fact, I feel like they're only like one of the the lesser appeals, which of actual physical Comic Con, um, because you know the panels only were pre-recorded and they didn't have any of the. Um, audience interaction or Q&As, which are generally not that fun to witness in person, but I feel like they really lack that communal aspect, especially just like debuting it without a live premiere as they can do on YouTube and having people actually react and, and uh, inter- interact with the people who were mm-hmm. on the panels. And they don't even have the comment section open on the YouTube Um, videos either which i think was a a big sign of just kind of cutting out that community entirely so i feel like that was one of the big disappointing aspects for me and you know the fact that there weren't many interesting um properties that were actually um being advertised or doing panels at comic-con at home they were kind of not there was nothing from marvel or dc
1: Mm -hmm. and
2: um, or star wars and um any studios that did participate um sometimes a few of them put uh, like debuted some stuff on their panels at Comic Con at home, but a few of them also um, like debuted trailers beforehand or rele- or releases afterwards. Like the Star Trek um, season two, pr- season three premiere was um, announced after the Comic Con panel, which seemed very right. odd. So it feels like there wasn't they weren't all on the same page, and it felt it very much was communicated in that way to anyone who was participating in Comic Con at home.
1: Yeah. What is, What about you, Brad? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much on the exact same page. It was just—it felt very weird. Uh, there was nothing really exciting that was announced, even from those that were involved. It's there's an awkwardness that comes from having these virtual panels because there's sometimes there's a delay between conversations, and you know it makes the the candid conversation hard to feel enjoyable because it makes it awkward, especially if there are jokes between cast members. It takes a second to get a reaction, and it's it was just all very weird. You know, even even the the casts that have great chemistry and that I enjoyed, you know, seeing on screen and, uh, you know, have seen fun interviews with, it's just, it's just very strange and stifling uh, to watch them in, in this format. And it made the proceedings just not fun uh, to watch. You know, all the energy is gone. all None of the excitement is there. The only benefit for, for this, for me personally, came from that it was a bit easier to get Comic-Con exclusives, the things that I wanted. I didn't have to run around the show floor or – you know, worry about um, keeping track of when things were going on sale and where, and potentially missing them because I had a panel to cover or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everything that I wanted from Comic Con as an exclusive, I was actually able to get, uh, even though a couple of them came with some of the standard online uh, difficulties of exclusive releases. But um, in, in that way, it was definitely more enjoyable. <laughs>
0: So let's talk a little bit about the actual numbers here. HC Variety published this report that basically uh, broke down, uh, according to this social media analytics firm, broke down sort of how Comic-Con at Home performed overall. And uh, it seems like the answer was not very well.
2: Yeah, Comic-Con at Home was a bust, according to this new report from Variety. Um, Social engagement was down 94% from last year's live events, and average YouTube views for the panels on Thursday, which were where the majority of the biggest panels for Comic-Con at Home were on, uh, came around to a measly 15,000 views per video, which is more is actually a little bit more than the it's over double the capacity for hall h which is comic-con's biggest venue but it's a very small number for a video on youtube where you know my, a minor viral hit can average in the millions and um it does it the panels afterwards did not do very well but but the uh the biggest um performing panel for Comic-Con at home was New Mutants, which logged around 208,000 views as of July 23rd. Um, But it's really not much to sneeze at either. It's uh, pretty poor numbers. And um, the the strongest performer on the TV side was... um, the Walking Dead panel, which had eighty-four thousand views and generated around eleven thousand nine hundred tweets, so it seems that uh, the, yeah, the numbers for Comic Con at home are pretty abysmal. And um, while it's comparably to like the people who can actually squeeze into those venues, seems like it's okay for anything that for a event that was held entirely online. It is not very good. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think the most brutal, uh, stat there was the new mutants one that you mentioned which had 208,000 views. But then the, the, I guess in comparison, there was this 52nd ad that was promoting the panel that had over 300,000 views. So like the, the commercial for the thing had more views than the thing itself, which is yeah, like, Oh man, that's uh that's not great. Um, I, I, I guess the let, let's, let's wrap up today's episode with this question. Um, do you guys think that the world will be, uh, or America specifically, I should say, will be in a in a good enough place next year to actually have a real Comic Con experience? Uh, let, let's do that question first, and then I'll ask a, a follow, a quick follow up, and we'll we'll wrap it up. So, um, HT, what do you think?
2: I actually don't know. I don't. I mean, at the rates that this pandemic is going and the fact that research for vaccine is still ongoing and optimistically you know we will have a vaccine by late this year early next year but even then i don't i'm not comfortable with just large crowds especially Mm -hmm. crowds crowds as large as comic-con and indoors at that um gathering so i i don't know if we'll have um comic-con next year i honestly am leaning towards no
1: what do you think brad It's yeah, I mean, it's tough, especially because the more we go on, the more it seems like the, you know, somewhat radical idea of movie theaters not opening until 21 is becoming more and more of a reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that even as we go into 2021, it's going to be hard to effectively plan these events, knowing whether or not the same crowds will be coming, whether or not people want to risk their health when it could potentially jeopardize their jobs. Um, I think the, the, it's really a wait and see game as far as how, you know, the actual flu season this year will potentially exacerbate the coronavirus situation and see what our response is to it. And based on our current response level to the coronavirus, I don't have a lot of faith in it working out very well.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of on the same page too. So I, the, the final question then is, uh, Considering how poorly uh, Comic-Con at home went over this year and just how sort of flat and and um, tepid the entire event felt, would you guys rather them try again next year or just cancel the thing entirely and not even worry about it? Uh, either one of you can jump in.
2: I think they should try again. I think that there were clear um, things that could be improved uh, and they could improve on them for next year. Like making it more of a communal a- aspect and um, making it more interactive in some way. Mm, I yeah I think that there is a benefit to these panels. Like I watched the the Bill and Ted Face the Music panel and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, not only with the interactions between the cast, but actually how Kevin Smith moderated it and the editing was, which was really fun and funky, um, which was a benefit of it being pre recorded. So I think that. You could have a successful Comic Con at home, a virtual Comic Con. Um, it maybe not like with any even much better numbers. Like I don't think they'll be doing, you know, millions of views. But I think that you could still have something that, um, you know, celebrates those properties and gives them a platform that they, you know, don't usually get in this big in this one weekend span.
1: What do you think, Brad? Uh, you know, it's tough for me. I if if it was the turnout was this bad i mean we're talking about like things being down 94% that is a steep steep decline and if people aren't going to turn out you know for something as simple as watching a youtube video I feel like it's you know going to be hard to convince people to, to do it. You know, it, It's not as if this is a thing where it required a lot of effort to tune into these things. It's just required people to be interested in the things that they're already interested in. And I think that I, I would bet that the money they probably put into making this happen and figuring it out probably was not worth the hassle in the end. And so unless they can figure out a way to bring more exciting things or do something to make it feel like more of an event, I, I just don't see them giving it a full shot if there's not going to be a full – comic-con next year in person
0: yeah my my one sort of uh potential piece of hope that i'm holding out for next year is that um the things will be looking up to such a degree that um you know all these movie release dates that have been pushed into 2021 will actually start happening uh instead of just being you know delayed and delayed forever and if that happens then there're going to be a a ton of good movies theoretically coming out next year and that means a ton of uh studios and and companies that are looking for ways to promote those movies and maybe you know, this year I think a huge part of the reason it, it failed was because there just really wasn't any like big name, you know, top-tier blockbuster stuff there, aside from new mutants and, and maybe a couple other little exceptions. But if you start having, if you start filling a lineup with tons of stuff that people actually care about then maybe that's the way to uh to get that 94% drop, you know, back up a little bit. So, um I I hope that we're in a in a better place there where like, you know, if we have to do this Comic-Con at home thing again next year, at least we're like, you know, the the end of the tunnel is near and and we're like on the upswing and and things are um are, you know, drastically improving and and we can sort of see our way out of this thing a little bit. But um yeah, I, I think if not, if things continue to trend downward and, and all these movies just keep getting delayed and delayed and delayed and started, you know, if we're halfway through 2021 and, and we haven't seen any of these big releases yet and stuff just keeps getting pushed into 2022, then yeah, I, I think I'm right there with you, Brett. And I, I think this should probably just wrap it up until we can figure out what the hell is going on here. So, uh, okay. On that note, let's wrap this up today. Um, let's just tell people where they can find more of our work online since we have a couple minutes. So uh, HT, where can people track you down?
2: You can find me writing every day at slashfilm.com. I'm on Twitter at htranbui, and I have a podcast, the Millennial Falcon Podcast, on Google, uh, iTunes. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a while since I've plugged it. So <laughs> 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 on, you know, podcasting platforms.
1: There you go. Uh, Brad, how about you? Uh, always on Twitter, Ethan underscore Anderton. Uh, of course, slashfilm.com. And also my own podcast called Go Flick Yourself, available on iTunes and other streaming platforms.
0: You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com as well. You can track me down on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published three times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on all the popular podcast apps and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. Uh, Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you next time.